if you could, please keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, which may be found on page 666, somewhat disconcertingly. And if you are the kind of person who is helped by having a sermon outline, then on the center of your bulletin, uh, on pages 8 and 9, there is a guide there, which I hope will be profitable to you. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Now, by almost all accounts, Horatio lived a happy life. He was born in New York to middle-class parents. As a young man, he decided to pursue a legal career, and that was met with remarkable success. By his mid-30s, he was a senior partner in a prominent Chicago law firm. He invested his income wisely, and at age 45, having grown wealthy, he decided that his family should take the opportunity to travel, and he made plans for them to visit England. However, due to commitments at work, he ended up sending his wife and his four young daughters ahead on a steamboat with plans to follow them later on. But tragically, midway through that crossing, the ship containing his family was struck by another vessel, causing it to sink, and with the consequence that 226 people died, including his four daughters. His wife, arriving in the UK on a rescue vessel, sent him a telegram containing two words, saved alone. It was a tragic and a seemingly meaningless loss of life, but it's only one of many such examples that we could cite. And most of us here have experienced some form of suffering and sadness, some very significantly, and others perhaps less so. Perhaps you have worked diligently in your work for many years, only to see the lazy and incompetent promoted above you. Now, you may have been a patient and sacrificial and long-suffering spouse, only to see your marriage fall apart. You may have pursued a healthy diet and exercise, only to receive a terrible diagnosis. And we are inclined to ask, why? If God exists and if he controls all things and if he is all good, then why did this happen? What is the point of it? What is the meaning? Where is the purpose? Is there a purpose and a meaning? And if so, how may I find it out? Well, that desire for understanding is quite natural. Perhaps we think that if, if only we could understand the point of our suffering, then maybe we could endure it just that little bit better. If only we could see things from God's perspective and transcend our reality and know his reasons why, then it wouldn't be quite so bad. But if that is the desire of our heart, then today's passage is profoundly humbling, and it may also be quite frustrating. For the preacher tells us that, note, only do we have little or no power over our lives and over events. But no matter how much we try, no matter how much effort we put in, we are powerless to even interpret those events. Have a look at verse 1. Here the preacher poses a rhetorical question. 
Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And what is the answer to that question? Well, verse 16, the, the preacher says, verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eye see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Who is like the wise man? Who knows the interpretation of God's works under the sun? No one. Man cannot find it out. So, brothers and sisters, as we are confronted today with this passage, with the limits of our understanding, our insight, our intelligence, let us first pray together that we might find our rest in the wisdom which God has revealed to us in his word. Let us pray. Almighty God, our maker and preserver, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in wisdom and in power, we acknowledge that you are the one who gives meaning to the world because you have created all things and governed them according to your perfect purpose. And we confess that instead of worshiping you in truth, we have turned aside to foolishness and created our own meaning. We grant that through the mediation of Christ, we pray, who is the revelation of your perfect wisdom, that we might be renewed in our minds and in our hearts unto true worship, and we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as I have just said, the main point of the preacher is that man, by the sheer application of our wisdom, cannot search out God's purposes under the sun. We cannot find it out. And to illustrate this, the preacher points us to two things, two vanities, two things that seem meaningless and pointless in this world. And the first is this, that we must submit to powers and to authorities which God has imposed over us. Powers that seem often foolish, corrupt, capricious, and selfish. We live in a time in which, according to verse 9, man has power over man, and not to his advantage and benefit, but often to his hurt. And most of us have experienced that reality at some level. We must execute the decrees of an employer who really has no idea what he is doing. We must be deferential to that police officer whose integrity is somewhat questionable. We must submit to the overbearing parent. We must respect those government ministers, even if it is blatantly obvious that some are corrupt and incompetent. We might think of Pharaoh or Herod, who chose to massacre thousands of helpless and defenseless people. Or perhaps we could consider Daniel, who was second only to the king in the entire Persian Empire, and yet that king threw him to the lions. And of course there is Jesus, crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? 
most of us are aware, or we ought to be, that we have little to no power over our masters, but they can wield great and terrible power over us. And this reminds us of our essential lack of power in this world. We may live with a semblance of freedom, but our position under authority, authority which is vain and foolish, reminds us that we actually have very little power over our lives. Verse 8 puts that very succinctly. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. You do not control those fundamentally important realities. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. At my age, my grandfather was sent to fight in the Second World War. He had no choice. Some of his brothers were killed in that war. They had no choice. What might we think in our hearts? If only I had the reins of power, if only I called the shots, if it was only my voice which was heard in that boardroom or in the heart of government. But that is presumptuous, isn't it? Yes, you may well be wiser than your boss. Yes, your vision of government may well be better and more equitable. You may even have more integrity. But even if that is the case, and you're not merely wise in your own eyes, you and I know perfectly well that we are not perfect. Our exercise of power would also demonstrate foolishness. Our policy agenda would also be deficient. Our ears would so easily dismiss our critics. But more importantly, such thoughts are presumptuous against God. We are asserting in our heart that unless his plans and unless his purposes conform to our perspectives, well then really his plans cannot be that wise. Or perhaps they are just not good. Or perhaps God isn't concerned or he isn't powerful enough to deal with our situation. Just because we cannot search out God's purpose for a Mr. Trump or Mahathir or much, much worse, a Hitler or a Stalin, it does not mean that he has no purpose. And it does not mean that that purpose is not wise or just or good. Remember, we are not the standard of wisdom. God is. and We are not the standard of justice or goodness or truth. God is. And God does not require, nor will he ever, our counsel or our consent in governing his universe. Whether in the large events or in the small, he is not obligated either to explain his works to us. So let's be wary of our hearts. We are very quick to make ourselves uh, and our experience the reference for everything. We are quick to assume that our ways will be better than anyone else's ways and God's ways, that our thoughts are higher and wiser than God's thoughts. But that is a part of our sinful nature, to make ourselves the supreme reference point for everything, for wisdom, for justice, for truth, for meaning, for purpose. So therefore, how ought we to behave? If 
just because we live under vain authority and, and we are not entitled to overthrow it because we deem ourselves to be more wise and more judicious and, and better, what are we to do? Well, what does the passage say? I think it says two things. Look down at verse 1. Verse 1, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. That is, we are to humbly submit ourselves to our earthly rulers, just as the apostle Peter and Paul tell us, that there is no power or authority which is not instituted by God. We are to obey our earthly masters. But second, we are also to be prudent. Look at verse 3. Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. That is, don't be quick to turn your back on authority in a display of vain resistance and defiance. That would be futile. And you might even lose the opportunity for good had you been patient. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way for there is a time and a way for everything. So obey the king, submit to authority, and patiently look for the opportunity to do good. But remember, whether that opportunity comes or not, you and I are not the master. God is. You and I do not have the power. God supremely does. And our experience under these present vain earthly masters, who may be foolish, who may be corrupt, who may be unjust, reminds us continually that we are not in control. We cannot search things out. So that's the first vanity. Now let's consider the second. The inversion, the turning upside down of justice the inversion of justice. Now, we might assume that because God made the world and because God governs the world and because God is just, that actions in this world should conform to certain predictable patterns. Uh, the hard-working person should reap prosperity and the idle should receive poverty. Uh, the good should see their rewards and the wicked their punishment. And the Bible does affirm that general principle. Uh, the book of Proverbs indicates that there is a certain general pattern in life. Uh, the sluggard, the lazy person, is unlikely to prosper. Uh, the criminal is usually eventually caught. However, experience also teaches us that this is not always true. The lazy man can become wealthy. He might win the lottery. The criminal can and does evade justice. The immoral person not only gets away with immorality often, but is actually lauded and praised by men. Verse 14 puts the situation before us succinctly. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, but there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. <coughs> we may think of Joseph, imprisoned after a false accusation of adultery, years of his life meaninglessly wasted. Or Job, or Jesus, the supreme example of the righteous sufferer, traded 
for that murderer Barabbas. You might have been in a similar position yourself. People have ganged up at you at work because you don't play ball with corruption. You don't fiddle the books. And you may ask yourself, why is God doing this to me? Where is the sense in it all? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? And if only I could understand my suffering and God's purpose for my suffering, then things would be better. And we may even have attempted or received superficial attempts to answer that question. We may hear them from our Christian friends, attempts with that veneer of respectable theology, just like Job's comforters. Uh, Perhaps you are undergoing the situation as God's punishment, they might say. Uh, Perhaps he has given you this torment to root out a particular sin that you need only confess before him. But often under the sun, we simply cannot explain the suffering and the circumstances we go through. It is, as our passage says, beyond our finding out. God has not, he often does not, reveal these things to us. And that is part of living in a fallen world. That is part of God's curse upon this world. Not only that we must undergo and go through suffering and difficult circumstances, But often the reason for that particular suffering may be beyond our searching out. We cannot even rationalize what is going on, and that is extremely difficult. And so therefore, as I close, I I want to think about this matter just a little bit more deeply. And and there is really one uh, big point that I wish to make, and I'll make it in a moment, but if, if you are the person who kind of tunes out because it's difficult to listen to me, then this is the moment to renew your interest, and then you can drift away again later, but please don't do that. Um, This is what I want to say. Ecclesiastes seems to be chiefly concerned with the issue of meaning and purpose in this world that appears to be vain and meaningless, because it does often look like there is no order, that there is no meaning in this world, that we appear to be governed by pure chance. Uh, The race is not always to the swift, the battle is not always to the strong, but time and chance happen to them all. But despite what we observe, the preacher insists that there is meaning in this vain existence. There is purpose. There is an underlying rationality to the chaos. But the point is that this meaning cannot be searched out by our wisdom. Now, there is a very big distinction between saying that we cannot determine and discern the meaning to concluding, therefore, that there is no meaning. That's a very different thing. Now, as a consequence of sin, God has subjected this creation to futility. And we, who sought to be wise by rebelling against God, God has firmly established as foolish. We cannot search things out now. Observation will get us nowhere. We will not be able to discern God's plans and purposes simply by looking at patterns in this world. Ecclesiastes also says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, right? God made that day of prosperity, and he's also made that day of adversity so that you can consider that 
man may not find out anything that will be after him. Man cannot find it out. No, what we need is not observation, principally. What we need is revelation. We need God to make known his purposes to us. And what the Apostle Paul tells us in the epistle reading earlier is that God has given us his wisdom. He has revealed wisdom to us. But that wisdom is a wisdom which the world has rejected and will reject. It is the wisdom of the cross of Christ. For is not the cross utter foolishness to our world? Is it not foolishness that life should come through death? Is it not foolishness that glory should come through suffering and shame? That power should be demonstrated through weakness? You see, the cross subverts, it turns upside down, every category of human understanding. When our heart says, I must strengthen myself to withstand this world, the wisdom of the cross says, God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. When our heart says, good cannot possibly come through suffering, the cross says, no, indeed, the salvation and eternal life and glory of your very soul rest upon the suffering of Christ. When our heart says what we ought to do is to particularly evangelize and build up those who are successful in this world, the educated and the upper classes, so that as the church we may be influential in the world, what does God say? I chose the weak and foolish things in the world to shame the wise and the strong. But finally, most importantly, the cross is also God's testimony to us in his grand subversion, in his turning upside down of things, that we, who are the wicked in this passage, the wicked who will one day be buried, that we will not face the eternal judgment and punishment of hell which we deserve. It shall not happen to us, the wicked, according to the deeds of our wickedness. Let us rejoice in that. No, on the contrary, it shall happen to us according to the deeds of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And precisely because it happened to the righteous one, Christ, according to the deeds of our wickedness. He was made sin for us that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Therefore, do not dismiss the vanity of this present evil age. Uh, do not dismiss it as meaningless, purposeless. There is meaning in this vain existence, but you shall not find it out by your human wisdom. Instead, you must lean, whole and entire, upon the wisdom which God has revealed to us, the wisdom of the cross of Christ. And we have that assurance, along with the preacher, that for those who fear God, for those of us who trust in him, for those of us who take up and believe in the cross of Christ and who follow that path to our death, that for those who fear God, we can be assured that it will be well in the end. Even though his ways may currently seem inscrutable and unknown to us, for those who trust in him, it will be well.
in the end. The Horatio to which I referred at the beginning of the sermon, some of you will know to be the famous hymnist Horatio Spafford. And you may also know that after that tragedy which he had endured, the loss of his four daughters, that seemingly meaningless vanity, that he took up his pen and wrote the great hymn, It is well, it is well with my soul. O oh, my sin, O oh, the bliss at this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Horatio understood that he may not understand what had happened that day and why God had inflicted that terrible circumstance upon him, that awful suffering, that seemingly meaningless vanity. But he knew that in the cross of Christ, the wisdom that God had revealed, that it would be well in the end, that he would be raised in glory and his daughters with him. Brothers and sisters, I pray that each of us may find rest in our present condition, whatever that is, in the knowledge that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, but the knowledge that we are loved by our wise God, who has revealed his wisdom to us in the person and in the, supremely in the cross of Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, we, we rejoice that the world did not know you through wisdom, but that you have made yourself known in Christ, who is your power and your wisdom. And we praise you that it has pleased you through the folly of the preaching of the cross to save us who believe. And we pray that our strength, our wisdom, our purpose, our hope, our meaning would not rest upon us, but in that great wisdom that you have revealed. And so we pray to you, the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.